I do have a pre-show topic that I thought maybe we could talk about. Have you guys, uh, anybody in here been to Microsoft's website recently today? Uh, because they got a new page up we can talk about. Why Microsoft is better than Linux. Microsoft versus Linux. Not, not Windows versus Red Hat Enterprise Linux. No, no. Microsoft versus Linux. Have you seen this? It's a comparison page. It's awesome. Maybe if What's we- the page? Great. Microsoft.com? No, why, why Microsoft.com? Go to why Microsoft.com. How great. <laughs> Look at this. Okay. Did you know that Windows has a lower total cost of ownership? Greater flexibility. You know how, you know, did you know that being closed source gives you greater flexibility with Windows? <laughs> and you can have the SQL Edge when you're using Windows. And uh, here's a good one. So uh, they got the Microsoft column on the left and the Linux column on the right, okay? Under the Microsoft column, you need to be future-proof for the cloud with, with Microsoft. Not, again, not Windows which I think is fascinating. With Microsoft, you're not just choosing a single solution provider. You're choosing a trusted business solution provider and IT advisor. IASS and PASS are available on Azure. Office 365 enables great productivity in the cloud, and Ubuntu CentOS and SUSE Linux Enterprise servers are all supported as clients on the Azure cloud platform. But under the Linux column, clear roadmap to the cloud, question mark? Will your Linux provider be able to support your entire infrastructure in the cloud if the time comes? Okay, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what are they even talking about right there? The best is that they're saying that Google Apps is an untried service, but you should use Office 365 instead. Which is newer. <laughs> it's newer than Google Docs. Oh, I think man. The, they've, they've actually got a section on Some security companies like, threats in there. We don't want to okay. try out Google. Found yes. guy, not the other guy, but I found him. Okay, security threats on this. This is hilarious. Yeah, let's, ta- let's talk about oh, the security wow. threats. All right, so in the security, uh, Microsoft has a proven security development lifecycle. We've made security a top priority with our security development lifecycle, also, by the way, called SDL. Hmm, I feel like SDL has been taken by something else. Uh, customers uh, also have direct access to the SDL under a Creative Commons license. <laughs> Wow. Oh, man. Now, under the Linux column for security threats, persistent threats and dedicated attackers can slow your projects and put your IT environment at risk with Linux projects. What does that even mean? Oh, man. Do you think this is in response to Munich, the French gendarmerie, Toulouse, the UK announcement about open document format? Do you think they realize they've got a fight on their hands now? Well, I do find well, it to be particularly interesting that they're not trying to push Windows. They're trying to push everything Microsoft yeah, has to offer. All the things, yeah. All the things. As one thing. Look how focused we are because all the things are now one thing. I just hope that like the BS marketing speak they use in these comparisons doesn't appeal to people outside of Microsoft because if it does, then that really sucks. Yeah, right? Right? Yeah. None, any of these statements that have any value under the Linux column apply just as much to Windows as it does Linux. I know, yeah. But they've got a page there to compare themselves with Google. I mean, they're yes. just asking for a beating here, aren't they? They do, and the best part is, it's like, is Google reliable? We are. Microsoft versus we Google. We don't think they're reliable. Microsoft. Is this domain even owned by Microsoft? <laughs> Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, privacy I actually do sec- wonder that. Privacy, security, and compliance you can trust. Now, riskier Google is riskier for the enterprise with a focus on advertising, a lack of clarity around data governance policies. Google Apps are riskier for enterprise. I would say that's the one bullet point I agree with because uh, you know Google just recently kind of got caught with their hand in the cookie jar when it came to uh, monitoring students' docs for advertising, and they had to pull back on that. So Microsoft now gets to lean on that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. What about their comparison with OpenOffice? 
They have open office on here? Look at this. Yes, they do. They My, say, oh, nice. There's like a quote from a company that says something like, we used to use open office, but we switched back to Microsoft Office. You could practically hear the sigh of relief. Right. Oh, we switched my back. God. That, really that quote is over two years old. That quote, yeah. we covered that two years ago on the Linux Action Show in a video. I remember. And this same one where they said it was cumbersome, That's that was also from that same video. Inefficient, if they're referencing the UI, is absolute BS. Every time I'm forced to use Microsoft Office and I don't know where something is, there's no logical way to find it. Whereas it's in, in open, LibreOffice... In LibreOffice, you just find the category and it's there. <laughs> to be fair, we are comparing against OpenOffice, which who the heck knows how many years old that is. Yeah, uh, you guys, case. last time I checked, OpenOffice doesn't have the ribbon, so screw you. <laughs> All right, let's see. No ribbon, no business. I just, Wait, someone should actually get a copy of this web page because you know they're going to take it down at some point. Yeah, you know what I yeah, like that, too. This is just this is the biggest admittance that they're screwed. Is right on their Microsoft versus Linux page, right there on the right hand side, second link. Speed up PHP performance. Now, this is how telling is that? That, like, on their This Is Why We're Better page, they have to give you right there, front and center, a link on optimizing something that out of the box just works great on Linux. I mean, everything could use optimization, but I think that's extremely telling right there. And PHP isn't a language that sort of cutting edge stuff is going to be deployed on these. Yeah. It's not a scale anyway. <laughs> you're, not, you're not driving a ton of clicks by advertising your PHP support. <laughs> no. And the companies they're using as examples aren't really good, like, big tech-related companies either. It's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, that how we compare, yeah. though, should really be list of companies that are eating our lunch. <laughs> Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that just hit the one-year mark without missing a beat. I'm a little excited. My name is Chris. And my name is Matt. Hey, Matt. Episode 52, if I am doing my math right, and it's easy math because we've never skipped a week, one year mark right here, buddy. We just landed on it. It's like, just fell right wow. into our laps. That's crazy. It feels like it's been like three months, maybe, at most. Yeah, and I think this actually, what this teaches me is that uh, I am just not very good at time perception because I am also like, at the same time, I'm like, you know what? It it kind of feels like it's been really, like you said, like three months. And then the other time it feels like, well, okay, I can't remember a time when we haven't been doing this show. <laughs> true. No, so, that's true. No, I can say that of last, but yeah, definitely with this show, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's what it is. It's in, it's in perspective of the Linux action show. Uh, yeah. Definitely. It, I know. Yeah, like Imacon says, it says, every time a show hits a landmark, it makes me feel like I'm around for you guys for too long. <laughs> that's true, Imacon. It's your warning sign. It's time to take a breather. No, I'm just kidding. Don't take a breather. We've got a great episode today. Frederick from the Crux Project is going to join us and talk about Crux Linux here in just a little bit. And we've also gotten some great emails in from the audience following up on some topics that we covered on Sunday's Linux Action Show. So I want to start with that because uh, the first one was one that I was kind of talking out my butt during the show and I knew we were going to get some feedback. In fact, I was kind of hoping for some feedback and Odin wrote in and uh, he delivered. It's in regards to Copper, the Fedora project we talked about. Odin says, from my understanding, the new Fedora Copper service is not really similar to the AUR. Instead, it's more like a PPA competitor. Unlike the AUR, which is a single repository that allows users to download build scripts, Copper is a build service that allows users to create personal repositories and upload their source packages. The Copper service builds the source packages and makes them available through each separate repository. Users who want to use Copper repositories need to add each new repository separately to their system using DNF. 
which is the future Yum replacement. For example, I've had problems installing Google Chrome on Fedora 21 because it depends on a legacy version of LibCrypt, which is no longer supported in Fedora 21. But there's a copper for that, so after running some DNF commands, he enables the repo, then he installs that compatible library, and Bob's your uncle, he's good to go. He says, it's kind of like a PPA, but with a central repository. Interesting. I could work with that, right? I could work with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I think maybe the system I would prefer is the AUR in whole, because I like the fact that there's a voting system there, a comment system there. I like the, the selection. Copper obviously didn't have the same selection. The other bit of feedback we got is that Copper has some of the same legal constraints that Fedora as a whole has since they're building those packages and whatnot. So there's going to be certain things there that, that maybe like, for example, popcorn time would show up in the AUR uh, yeah. but maybe isn't going to show up in the Copper repos perhaps. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's that's bizarre. I'll bring in the uh, mumble room. Hello, virtual lug. Anybody in here a Fedora user and familiar with copper? Or, or, have we gotten anything wrong? Are we egregious? No? Okay, good. Apparently not. No, I think that well, means no. Apparently you nailed it. Yeah, I think so. That's good. That's a good sign. That means we're not leading people astray, Matt. All right. Uh, that's it. Next email. Let's get to the next email. It comes in from Michael, and Michael writes into the show. I and mean, you can write in, too, by going to jupiterbroadcasting.com, clicking Contact. Linux Unplugged features contact from the Linux Unplugged uh, form and also from the Linux Action Show. We try to we get so much email to both shows that we try to collect it all in one place. So Michael wrote in about emails and email clients. He says, hi, guys. Huge fan of the show. When I was using Outlook, I was crazy about the integration with a really decent calendar feature. My question is, with all of the talk about viable Linux calendar apps and with the availability of LibreOffice, why haven't we seen an email client or calendar from them? It doesn't make any sense, and I think it's time for one. I could surely use it. Keep up the great work, and thanks, Michael. So, Matt, uh, do you think think we have a – this is the third week in a row, which is crazy to me that we've gotten people commenting about productivity apps like calendar and email under Linux. Uh, And do you think – do you think the LibreOffice project – should be making a calendar? I think it's overdue. I think the problem is, is it's always, and this is very true in the Linux world in general, is that everybody's kind of focused on the projects they're passionate about. And it's re- and the end users basically uh, gets to come along for the ride. It sounds terrible to say, but I, that's been my general experience. And I'm not speaking to distros. I'm speaking to specific applications. So I look at like the Evolution Project or mm-hmm. I'm looking at various uh, things you can do to Thunderbird to pim it up, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, it always feels janky. I guess mm. at the end of the day, and and because you go to the other platforms and you've got like a stupid amount of choice, it's it's just ridiculous. That's true. And yet you come to Linux and it's like you're pretty gonna pretty much gonna end up going web based. You just are. You know, there really is no other alternative. I mean, truly. I've been using uh, I've been using Evolution with some success, and then I have also been trying yeah. out Lightning on Thunderbird. But you're right; it does feel a little janky. Uh, the, there oh, is evo- a, yeah, Evolution. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean. So what I've been using more so is the Evolution data server backend, which then populates my GNOME calendar. I don't actually use Evolution that much. Uh, oh. And then I have my Lightning calendar subscribed to the same calendars that my GNOME Evo- data servers subscribe to. But that means I have two different programs checking the same calendar feed. It's not super elegant, but at least they're referencing the same right. source. So there was a blog post about the future of Thunderbird uh, posted on July 31st. And uh, they say, so current update, which is good news for any Thunderbird users, guess what? Thunderbird usage is growing. They say we have a strong core team and expect to remain relevant in, on the Internet for the foreseeable future. And the Thunderbird, they recognize, is mission critical to tens of millions of users. Here's where they want to go in the near ter- term. 
Thunderbird should be a full-featured desktop personal information management system incorporating messaging, calendar, and contacts. We need to incorporate the calendar component lightning by default and drastically improve contact management. We should be actively promoting open internet standards in messaging, calendaring, and contacts through implementation. So they also apparently hmm. see the need to integrate calendars into Thunderbird. I don't know, Matt. I, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I, Thunderbird needs to stick to email and just focus on email. I, I, think, I think when you plug in Lightning into Thunderbird, it feels janky. But I think that the Lightning idea and the, and the app itself is actually just worlds better than Evolution. Evolution just feels like a trip back to the 90s. Um, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't even deal with it. And I used to use it a lot. I mean I, I've spent years with it and I hate it with a passion. But I'd say Lightning's a great idea. I like the idea. I don't really want to blend it in with current Thunderbird. It just doesn't fit well enough. Mm. But that being said, it's, it's usable. It's not horrible. Oh, and if you I'm, have some sort of web-based calendar or have something that you can sync up with a yeah, CalDev, whatever. As long as they get it it's right. It's doable. they got to yeah, get it right because if they screw it yeah. up, man, my Thunder, if they ruin my Thunderbird, what am I going to do, man? Yeah. What am I going to do? Yeah, it's, that's true. And if you have the option to take kind of an opera approach and, like, disable something you don't want in it, problem mm. solved. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. I, don't want, I don't want a calendar. I just want email. Make it go away. Poof, gone. Problem I, I solved. Wish, um, I wish yeah. I could do the same with uh, evolution. Like, strip out all the task stuff because the task yeah. implementation in evolution oh. is just god awful. Like, please it really is. burn yeah. it alive, sort of thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Honestly, <laughs> evolution just should be calendar and mail, and that's it. Yeah. 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 I and mean, as long as you never, you know, you don't implement the exchange backend, it's less painful. Yes. Um, yes. The exchange backend to make you want to punch things, it's yes. horrible. Yes. Oh my goodness. But, All right. I think we're probably done talking about Thunderbird. We do have, uh, <laughs> we have one more email to get to. I mean, you guys can still, you can send in your feedback. We'll read it. If this is a topic people are obviously interested in, Andreas writes in. He says, hello, Chris and Matt. I've been watching almost all of the JB shows for a year now. This is great content. I have a DigitalOcean droplet serving up Django. It's a Django project. One of the things I want to do is some kind of virtual meeting, sometimes part of a group. Oh, we have a little echo back there. Sometimes it's Uh part of a group or, uh, you know, he wants to single to multiple people sometimes, sometimes just a single person. Uh, And also maybe have an embeddable IRC client. It could be video or audio. Uh, so he, he says, here's the requirements. He needs to be able to run on a DigitalOcean droplet and a way to send out audio or video. He wants to be able to serve anything from the droplet, not any third-party host. So, like, no Google services, no mm-hmm. no Twitch.tv. Uh, and the video is just one way, or the audio. So he only needs to be able to send it out. doesn't need to be able to receive anything from them, uh, and, uh, and except for IRC. So he wanted to know if we had any recommendations for uh, virtual meetings, things that he could do to uh, broadcast something to multiple people all hosted on his own system. And I was thinking, you know, IRC, you can, go, you can go grab an – I mean, I, you could host your own IRC server. I would not. I would say go, go on the Geek Shed or go on to Freenode and just grab a room. Just, you can make it a private room, but don't, don't bother with that. For the broadcasting – I don't know, maybe somebody has a better idea. I was thinking IceCast. Just do an audio IceCast yeah. stream because he wants to be able to embed the player on the website and you could use HTML5 audio, hey to stream IceCast right in the browser. It wouldn't be video, but you would get audio, though. That's about the best I could come up with. I mean, really, for what? because he's not wanting to utilize other tools and services, that, that definitely limits chat, my ideas. You know, Chatroom points out WebRTC might be a solution here, too. Uh, Palva TV, P-A-L-A-V-A TV, browser-to-browser video conferencing. WebRTC mm-hmm. might be able to solve this, too. Anybody in the Mumba room have any software suggestions for something to do uh, uh, self-hosted video conferences? 
I don't think so. No, they're 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 bubkiss no. today. They're bubkiss. It's, it's, it's kinda, they're it's just coming up hard. nothing. Yeah, <laughs> there is one called appear.in. Uh, okay, yeah. is that a WebRTC one? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think that's probably your best bet right now. And the nice thing about WebRTC is if they even have a semi-modern browser, you're not going to have to have them like install a plugin or something. If you got if you if you're using a system that requires a plugin, you're almost dead in the water right there. So, right. you know what? WebRTC is probably actually the really sensible approach. So, Andreas, look into WebRTC solutions. We actually did an episode of Linux Action Show a ways back. Uh, there's a few. Uh, check out uh, meet.jitsi.si or uh, G-I-T-I.si. There's a couple of different options out there, and uh, we'll try to collect a few links. And, um, and oh, you know what? It'd be a good time to say, if you're listening to this after the fact, and you're like, oh, man, there's one the guys need to know about, please go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com, find the feedback thread for this episode, and drop a link in there. And uh, I'll try to remember to collect all of those, and uh, we'll cover them in a future episode, maybe episode 52. So, uh, our buddy uh, Mike there was talking about how he was hosting this, or I'm sorry, it was Andreas, over on a DigitalOcean Droplets. So why don't I just take a minute here and tell you about DigitalOcean, because guess what? I rock DigitalOcean Droplets like a boss. Over at DigitalOcean.com, we got a brand new promo code for the month of August, which is blowing my mind. Unplug August. Unplugged August, all lowercase. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. Let me tell you about DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Now, if you're a boss, you can probably do this in under 55 seconds, like myself. But, you know, for most of you, maybe it's your first time, you're new, you can spin up a cloud server in less than 55 seconds. And pricey plans start at only $5 per month. That gets you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Their their pricing plans are so straightforward and simple, too, that as you go up, you get more bandwidth, you get more CPU, more storage, etc., etc. And when you use that promo code, Unplugged August, you're going to get that $10 credit. So if you grab the $5 rig, like I've been using forever now, you grab that $5 rig, you can try it for two months for free when you use the promo code Unplugged August. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and a brand new one in London. Their interface is so simple. Their control panel is super intuitive, but extremely powerful. And like, you're like, hey, you know what? I need more power. I need more power. Well, guess what? Boom, they got you covered. Straightforward API available. You can replicate a lot of the functions on a much larger scale. Automate that S, son. Go out there with that straightforward API. And if you go over to DigitalOcean right now, I want you to go over there and click on the Features tab and take a look at the control panel. So they have the droplet management system. They have the DNS system built in, too. They also have snapshots, two-factor authentication, an HTML5 console written in Go. You can resize and deploy applications with one click, like Ruby on Rails, WordPress, GitLab, all of that. Boom. Send it all there. It's all running on top of a Linux box, sitting on these SSDs, so you get that super-fast I.O. connected to Tier 1 bandwidth. I mean, it's a really great offering. DigitalOcean.com, and you can try it out for two months for free. They also have some hourly pricing structures available. So if you want to just try something out for some testing, you can do that. I tell you what, I've got a BitTorrent sync system over there working flawlessly. Really unbelievable reliability. I've now got an own Cloud 7 instance over there, and I've, I'm not, I don't know if I want to give it out just yet. I might eventually, but I've got a great domain name for it because some of the new TLDs that are out there. So now, like every time I like SSH into my new DigitalOcean droplet with this new TLD, <laughs> it makes me giggle. I love it. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code UnpluggedAugust when you check it out. Grab yourself something and you'll get it for two months for free. And since DigitalOcean is so cool, if you forgot, because you know, maybe it's late. I'll forgive you. You forgot to use the promo code. Bro, it happens. It's okay. DigitalOcean's got you covered. You can go retroactively apply that promo code if you forgot. DigitalOcean.com, 
Unplugged August when you check out. That lets them know, too, that you really do appreciate them keeping us on the air. DigitalOcean.com. Huge thanks to those guys for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Okay, Matt. Well, Frederick joins us from the Crux Project. Frederick, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, how long have you been with the Crux Project? What's your background there? Uh, well, I started using Crux in, I think, about 2004, 2005. And uh, I, was, I was the one who started, the, I guess, the port that, that is now Crux 3.0 and 3.1 oh, uh, for okay. x86-64. X um, so I think I started that in 2008 or something like that. Okay, perhaps. so quite a while then, quite a while. Well, very good. Well, I, I really appreciate you being here. We had a chance to look at Crux on uh, Sunday, and the thing that really sort of stood out to both Matt and I is when you have a distribution that has a lineage of Crux, I think something that people uh, have a hard time really wrapping their brains around is this isn't based on something else, is it? This Crux is it's an, it's an OG Linux distribution, and do you feel like maybe that makes Crux stand out from the crowd a little bit more? Yeah, I suppose so. I, I use uh, quite a few distributions at work and uh, on different platforms, so it, it's not like Debian or not like CentOS or Red Hat or anything like that. So I think if you need to compare it to anything, it's probably more like Slackware or just Linux from scratch. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because uh, what you've kind of touched on is probably one of the number one questions we had sent to the show. So we let... We let the folks know that uh, you'd be on the show, and if they had any questions, to send them in. And we got a bunch of questions into the show, and a lot of them were the same one. So I just—I guess I want to start there because you kind of just touched on is A lot of people wanted to hear where you felt, just in your opinion, Crux fits, fits in, like in, say, compared to Arch. I think people, a lot of people wanted to know Crux versus Arch. What would you say Crux's strengths are, say, over Arch? Uh, well, <laughs> actually, I've never used Arch in my life, so I'm perhaps I'm not the right person to answer that question. But uh, as far as I can understand, just by looking very, uh, uh, not really in depth on Arch, I guess yeah. it's pretty similar. But yeah, I'm I'm not really comfortable making a, a comparison. That's fine. I think. Uh... You know, a lot of people see that uh, it's sort of a setup from scratch kind of uh, scenario that I think a lot of people see a similarity there. But I I think your app, your comparison more to Slackware is perhaps is more apt. And uh, do you consider Crux to be competing with, um, you know, the Ubuntu's and the Debian's out there? Is there, is, is, are there similar use cases there or is Crux, uh, is Crux not really competing at that, at that kind of, in that kind of way? <laughs> No, we're not really competing with anyone, and we don't really uh, look to compete either. Right. If you like Crux, if you think it fits your philosophy and how you use your computer, that's yeah, that's great. Right. We, lo- we like it, so... Success <laughs> isn't measured in user base size. No, 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 no not at all. Uh, even if it was... If uh, everyone else... El- if everyone else left Crux tomorrow, I'd still run it, sure. and i still maintain it, so... Yeah. Yeah. Do you know? Do you guys have you know a rough guesstimation of the user base size of Crux? Uh, no, not really. The only we don't really distribute the ISO from the Crux side itself, so it's only mirrors, and that's pretty hard to uh, really count, I guess. Um, uh, perhaps the best way to uh, really get a count is to monitor the R-Sync usage from port three. But uh, I asked. 
uh, a few days ago, and it didn't re- really get a response, so I'm not really sure how many we are. But I guess it's probably less than 10,000, 10, more than 200. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably a pretty safe guess. Wimpy, uh, I, you are a former Crux maintainer. Um, now you work with the Arch Project. Did you want to share your insights on sort of some of the similarities between the projects? Um, yeah, there are there are some similarities. Um, and you, you mentioned on Sunday that um, Arch, the, the original Arch developer, um, Judd Vinette, was um, inspired by Crux, and it was the inspiration that led to him developing um, Arch. So in that respect, there are some similarities. And um, I was a Crux maintainer from January 2002 to December 2003. So that was Crux 0.9 era. And I was a bit shocked to learn I used to be the KDE maintainer for Crux, which I obviously <laughs> oh blanked, yeah, blanked out of my memory. Um, but in terms of the similarities, um, if you look at Arch Linux um, before the System D switchover, when it still used rc.conf, um, it, uh, configuring Crux is very similar to how you used to set up Arch. Um, and the other th- similarity is, of course, it's um, a ports type system, which um, effectively the AUR is um, like a ports tree, if you like. And if you actually go and look at the PKG files on Crux and then go and look at a PKG build file for Arch Linux, you can clearly see that yes. Arch was heavily influenced yes. by Crux because yeah. there, there's there's fewer... Um, functions in Crux, but they are almost identical. And I've even heard rumors that you can take packages from Crux and build them on Arch without having to change anything. Yeah, you, you could do that. You need to change a few variables and stuff like that, but it's really simple to just yeah, move it over to Crux if wow, you like. that underscores it. So that kind of brings me to the next, probably most common question. This is not really controversial, but I suppose some people consider it to be. Uh, but Otter was the first to ask. He says, I notice there's no systemd package in the repos and there's no systemd page on the wiki. Do you have any issues with systemd as a distribution? Uh, you know, like some of the same problems some of the other source-based distros have. Or uh, what are your thoughts on that, Fred? Because I know the BSD init script style system is sort of an important identity point for Crux, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Or uh, uh, init scripts to boot the system is perhaps, yeah, a few couple of lines, perhaps 80 lines, I don't really, haven't really counted. And it's really simple. You can easily see everything that happens. You can change anything if you like. So we haven't really, yeah, we don't think systemd really fits with our philosophy. I, I'm not really personally interest, interested in it. The only, yeah, I guess contact we have with, with it is the um, merger of uh, UDEV to systemd, and that has been a a bit of a headache for us, and it's guess I guess it's made us a bit worried on, yeah, what to go from here. Frederick, in uh, you know, since you've been working with Crux since two thousand eight, have there been any surprise Crux use case scenarios where you'll bump in and find oh, this embedded device is using Crux, or these this company has Crux deployed on their servers that sort of surprised you that you never even knew about until one day it just sort of fell in your lap. Yeah, I guess one or two years ago, we had a guy asking for support on a really old Crux distribution. I, I can't really, really remember the user case, but uh, it turned out uh, he was the, yeah, I guess the boss of a company that used Crux for a d- data recovery, um, forensic data recovery on hard drives. So that was a bit of a shock, actually. Oh, cool. That's a good one. Uh, Bitpuffin, you wanted to share some thoughts on SystemD and what kind of drove you to Crux? 
Yeah, um, well, basically, I really liked the way Arch used to be configured, and when they switched to SystemD, it all kind of became magic, and I didn't really feel comfortable with that, so I switched to Crux, and uh, I actually like most of it more anyway, so it's, it was kind of what drove me there, but then I just like everything more. Yeah, I, I could see how Crux could be a refuge for a lot of folks that are not super happy with SystemD. Uh, to me, I would feel, as a distribution not implementing SystemD, I would feel like it is looming over me like it's like i'm becoming surrounded and that it it's i don't know it seems like it's just going to become more and more intertwined with every other distribution out there it's, it's gonna yeah be, absolutely could be an uphill uh, battle frederick yeah uh, really <laughs> uh, we had some uh, i think we're the only other distribution that other than Jinsu that use udub uh, the poor uh, the the fork yeah. of you. Right. Um, but I guess we'll see uh, in a few years how things look. Yeah. You know what? It might it, it might turn out to be a, a really good long-term bet, actually. You never know, right? Think, crazier things have happened. Uh, did, you have, uh, did you have any crux myths or common misconceptions you wanted to address or anything kind of like that? I always like to... I know that sometimes some of the underrepresented distributions sort of uh, misconceptions can kind of crop up over time. So I always like to give the floor to a guest to have a chance to pop some of those rumor bubbles if there are any. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure. Um, we're cl- quite a close community. Community, uh, Not close, but uh, right. tight community. Yeah. So I, I don't really think many people have any uh, misconceptions misconceptions on what crux is well um, yeah I mean, for perhaps a, your the list other listeners have some questions the, or the one i would give so. you the one i would shoot at you is and i think it's actually a good thing is i think the the co- common misconception is that uh is crux is people are a little curmudgeons over in crux land and i think really what it is is it's actually just a sense of pragmatism about what functionally works for this group of people and it's not about uh it's not about setting up a a, a fence where uh, the neckbeards can hang out. It's about just creating a very simple distribution that works, that doesn't have a lot of extra stuff built around it that gets in the way, and uh, it is extremely practical. Am I, is that essentially my sense, right, Frederick? Yeah, I think so. I, I do need to shave, but uh, um, we've had some users um, mailing to the mailing list asking for uh, no more. Why doesn't this work on yeah, Crux? Sure, uh, sure. How do I get Steam to work? Uh, things <laughs> yeah, like that. I bet, yeah. <laughs> and you can get it to work, but you just need to make uh, to spend a lot of time building everything because we don't want to do it. So, <laughs> yeah. especially that you could you could do it, but um, yeah, I guess yeah. yeah, we like to keep it simple. <laughs> very very well, and as you should, because I think that's what's particularly appealing about it. Well, uh, Frederick, if if you don't mind, uh, if you want to stick around, we're going to talk about Crux. We had uh, the folks in the room uh, kick the tires and. We're all kind of going into this knowing that you know it's not a distro for everybody. Uh, but now that does that said, Mumble Room, feel free to speak your mind, and Frederick, you feel free to respond to anything you want. We'll uh, talk about the community's reaction. We have a virtual uh, review lug, if you will, a, a strike team that goes in and tactically assesses distribution. That sounds that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, we, we call them we I'll call them uh, Linux Team Six. No. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> too soon. Too soon. All right. So uh, but before we jump into that, why don't I uh, – I'll thank our next sponsor because uh, Linux Academy has uh, just recently rolled out some brand new stuff. So this is a great time to mention Linux Academy. Head over there to check them out, linuxacademy.com. In fact, go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That will get you the summer of learning discount. 
That's right, up to 33% off. That makes that makes it 50 bucks a quarter. They just rolled out brand new stuff, an entire new course called OpenStack Essentials. It's 100% complete, and it's up on Linux Academy right now. Go over to linuxacademy.com and take the tour. See their new AWS certified SysOps administration prep course. It's really come together, and it's packed with over 14 hours of content. Now, what is Linux Academy? Think of it this way. A group of extremely passionate Linux users who had an educational background and then the other group, the other side of the group had a development background. They came together and said, we need to create a platform for other Linux users to learn and expand their skill set. So here's what they did. They set up a system that's all based around step-by-step video courses with downloadable comprehensive study guides. It, each course, when you require it, it comes with its own server they spin up on demand. You can run seven plus of the available Linux distributions they have. They automatically adapt the courseware to match that distribution. This is a great way if you need to switch distributions to learn how another one is done, or if you've been primarily a Red Hat guy and now you're working on an Ubuntu box, go get yourself up to speed. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. You can keep track of your progress as you go, too, so you'll see exactly how long it's going to take you, so you'll know exactly how much time you need to budget. You can come back later on and check it out, see where you're at, test yourself, keep up to date, and they've got a community, too, that'll help kind of give you that incentive if you choose to engage. You can remain a loner. That's fine. That's my approach. But if you'd like to go in there and tell people and talk to people about where you're getting stuck, help people kind of get people to kind of help you move along and sort of it's like when I went to a gym, I would have I would have a gym buddy that would kind of encourage me to keep going. The community can be that same kind of thing. So go check out all of the new course where they're adding all of the time. If you want to mess around with AWS too, this is a great opportunity because they'll spin up the AWS instances as you need them. They've also been doing some live streaming with Q&A so you can ask the instructor questions. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed hearing a lot from our audience is when they're learning and they really get excited about the topic and they really starting to, you know, it's really scratching that itch, but they need to step away for a while. They're taking these comprehensive study guides because they're in video, PDF, and audio, and they're downloading them offline and, and consuming them when they're in the shower, when they're, when they're in the car, and they're always able to learn. This is a great way to get your skill set up to help you become a little more employable or land that next contract or check that box off on the review or just intellectually stimulate yourself. LinuxAcademy.com slash Dumplug. Go take advantage of the Summer of Learning discount because you know what? Summer's not going to last forever. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. And a really big thank you to Linux Academy for being so damn awesome and supporting the Linux Unplugged show. LinuxAcademy.com slash Unplugged. Okay, mumble room. So you guys, uh, you guys got to do what Matt and I did for last Sunday. You got to try out Crux. I'm really kind of looking forward to it now. I know we have a we have a wide range of experience here. Wimpy, obviously, as a former Crux maintainer, didn't have a hard time. But Josh, I know that when you started to dig into it, you realized it might be a little more than you were willing to bite off, right? Yeah, so uh, for, first, a disclaimer, I am completely spoiled by binary packages, <laughs> and I refuse to compile anything unless I absolutely have to. It's like a it's so, like a pride thing? Is that what you're saying? No, it's more of a time thing. Okay, I don't have time okay. to compile everything. And I understand some people have really high-end computers, and they could compile stuff in freaking milliseconds. But Josh is know, on a Celeron. But... He's got... No, <laughs> no, no, not quite. <laughs> um. When I when I looked at Crux, um, and I came to the realization that I needed to compile my kernel and figure out all the modules I needed, and I disclaimer they do have a really good set of defaults, uh, that immediately turned me off. But here is why I think you should use Crux, plain and simple, and that's their port system. 
you would be insane if if you're using Arch and you want something more source based, where you want to control every little bit of source that goes into your system. Crux is for you, and if you want to make sure that there isn't any uh, unnecessary garbage that's getting thrown in your system, the port system is just so flexible. And from what I've seen, there is a lot of ports maintainers. Uh, you have a core team, and you have a lot of experienced individuals that maintain an extensive amount of ports. Hmm. Uh, and you could easily enable uh, different port sections, such as a uh, contrib, which is the most experienced uh, port uh, maintainers from from what I've seen, uh, and that opens up a huge variety of software. That's good to know. Now, Bitpuffin, you say there may be a solution for Josh who wants binary packages, right? Yeah, so uh, me and another fellow Cruxer uh, named ProLogic are working on an open-source service for uh, maintaining port collections and stuff, and it will also provide uh, automatic builds um, oh. So you get binary packages, and there's actually a binary package manager in Crux called package get, like port get, but for uh, binary packages, basically. Uh, yeah, so that might help a bit. That's very true. All right, so you've got some solutions. There sounds like what I've. It seems like every time I dig into something, Frederick, when it comes to Crux too, it, it sounds a lot of times like. Uh, uh, the portions of the community just sort of spontaneously come together and fill in gaps. Like, isn't that isn't that how package get kind of also originally was uh, materialized is by community participation? And it's like, okay, we as a community want to fix this thing. Let's all get together, and that's really cool. Yeah, uh, I think uh, most of the Crux system you see today actually was built by the community. Uh, Crux was started by Perlidian. Uh, and he was pretty much alone maintaining it uh, for a number of years before the community stepped in and joined up. So um, peer to get uh, tools like that are mostly develop- developed by, from scratch by the community, so I, gu- I guess so. Uh, we have ARM an ARM fork uh, because somebody noticed that they wanted to put Crux on ARM, mm-hmm. so that was created, and yeah. Very I nice. guess so. Yeah, Wimpy, uh, you know, you touched on it. Maybe it was in the pre-show. Josh is like, yeah, boy, when I found out I had to compile my kernel. Wimpy, do you have some wisdom when it comes to building the kernel under Crux? Um, not wisdom. I mean, obviously, I, <laughs> you read the Crux page and it makes it very clear that they use the words experienced Linux users. Yeah. So I see this and I think, right, brilliant. Let's get a large glass of whiskey, roll our sleeves up and get stuck in. So the install... Uh, I found very similar to Arch. If you've installed Arch since they got rid of the menu-based installer, Crux and Arch are, are very similar, and I would say that installing Crux is as easy, in quotes, as installing Arch. Although... But but you having, have to compile the majority having, of the stuff. Uh, well, the the install, everything comes from binaries, except the kernel. So my my critique would be that as part of the install, stick a kernel on that's pre-built with the defaults because the defaults are very good. Um, and then for the tinkerers and tweakers, you can then couldn't you grab uh, the live recom- CDs kernel image from the live yeah, CD slash boot? Yeah, you could. Yeah, uh, I didn't uh, think. But of that. The, the live CD kernel, it it's built with a 
modules and yeah. stuff like that. Um, it might be a bit tricky to move over. Yeah. I'm not really sure. It's simpler, but I, yeah, but I would actually, good. I actually think, uh, you know, building the kernel is the easiest part of the crux install because I mean, you just go into the kernel kernel source directory, make menu config, choose your options, uh, make all make module install, and uh, then copy the image over, and then edit the grub. I mean, the hard part is editing Lilo and moving the you know VMZ image over. But because yeah, the source code is already on the ISO, it's not like, you know, I mean, for me, when it comes time to, like, for me, building a kernel from scratch is you use links to go to kernel.org, you download the freaking source code, you extract the freaking source code, then you go into that new directory that you've just extracted, and then you make menu config. For me, the fact that the, the folder was already there and extracted made it easy. It doesn't seem that hard to me. Yes, yeah. as the man who's got a bonobo extreme with a <laughs> sexy CPU, I'm exactly. on a seven-year-old laptop. All right. yeah, there's it's not that. how difficult it is, it's how long it takes. Okay, all right, fair enough. That, right. That's, that's the real thing, how, how long it takes. It's like I have other stuff I need to do, and I get it. You know, Once you're up and running with it, uh, it it's, it's potentially just as easy as running an Arch install, if not easier, but so it's, it's the time you have to initially take into it might not be appealing to some individuals. Now, hold on. Bitpuff yeah, and... Are, and if, oh, go ahead, Frederick. Yeah, and if you notice you need something that's not really provided by the community, it might be a bit of a pain in the house. <laughs> Sorry. Well, for, uh, <laughs> yeah, well I mean... Li- like Steam, for example. We have yeah. had a few people who got it running, but it is a lot of work, and you well, need yeah. to install half the internet from uh, for <laughs> libraries and stuff like that. So, yeah, you could do it, but perhaps it's not really the distribution you want if you need to do that. that well, there's that, that kind of thing. but it sounds, like, it sounds like what Bitpuffin is saying is there the port system might actually have a solution for some folks, Bitpuffin? Yeah, so you could, like, you could theoretically make a port that builds the kernel and stuff for you, and uh, I think people have attempted, like, maintaining that in the past just that they probably maybe left or something, or yeah, very okay. probably knows that But it's been... technically possible. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, all right. That makes sense. I've been dancing around this question the whole time. Wimpy, I really want to know, as a former Crux maintainer, but, you know, so it gives you a bit of a bias, I'm sure, but I'm really curious. I know you you dove into it more recently again. What was it like going back, and what were your impressions? Um, I was really surprised how little has changed in the <laughs> last uh, 10 or 12 years. Is that good? Um, <laughs> Well, I, I think it is. I mean, uh, I've got some notes here, and towards the end, I, I explain why I think it's a good thing. But um, yeah, the the um, package system, the way it's um, distributed, the way it's installed, the fact you have to compile the kernel as part of the install, um, the package tools, PRT get even or PKG get, I forget. Um, yeah, PRT get. It's all all as it was, and there's no dependencies in the base package system, which is just how I remember it. Um, but it was this compiling stuff from source that ultimately reminded me why it was I left Crux <laughs> in the first place. Oh, okay. And and that was because um, I'd been using Crux for two years, and what I realized was is that I hadn't actually used my Linux workstations for anything productive whatsoever. I'd just spent two years compiling stuff, tinkering, and configuring my system, but not actually using it, which is sort of bad, but it's also good because I learned an awful lot during those two years. Mm -hmm. And I owe the project a a debt of gratitude because I learned about all of the file systems. I learned about compiling kernels. I learned about loading modules and when to choose to make kernel modules and when to build them into the kernel. And this was, you know, all invaluable skills that have served me well to this day. So 
that there is a place for crux to exist and I, I i i couldn't see myself using it now as my main operating system but for people that are out there that have installed debian or ubuntu well ubuntu or mint and then want to learn a bit more about how linux works then you can graduate to maybe a debian net install you know text-based installer and then install all of your packages and com compile it and build it and then migrate to Arch Linux and then migrate to Crux, which will give you an even deeper understanding of how you put together a Linux operating system. Mm -hmm. And then you can go for something like Linux from scratch to really learn how the um, boot manager um, talks to the kernel, talks to the init process and, and you know round off your understanding about how it all works. So there's a place for Crux. And without Crux, there probably wouldn't be, have been an Arch Linux. So... Wimby, let me ask it's you this. Then. I mean, I noticed. I like your graduation scale of uh, learning of ways. You know, like stepping up your learning, starting with net install of Debian, and and stepping up there. But there's the elephant in the room in your step. There is. It seems like it might be possible to take Crux out of that step and insert Gentoo and have the same effect. Do you feel like you have a clear differentiator in your mind where Crux is strongly differentiating from Gentoo, and why you might choose one over the other? Yeah, I think I think you could say that Gentoo. Uh, it helps you a little bit more along than than Crux does. Um, the the mm. package system e-builds are a mm -hmm. little bit more flexible um, and more mature as well. I mean, some of the things I ran into uh, installing the system was, was footprint errors, which was frustrating because installing a lot of packages takes a long time. You can't rely on it to complete or automatically in the background because you get footprint errors that you have to then go to and True. sort out. True. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, regarding the footprint errors, I really do think we need to improve that bit. Uh, that bit. Uh, you have uh, you could have new footprint errors or you could have missing. And of course new, it just might be because you installed uh, yeah, cuffs or whatever and uh, sequential packages are built with the printer support and you get a new library file and uh, yeah, you get an error. So okay. that's not really uh, pretty at the moment, but yeah, we could improve that, and we probably will. Yeah, I mean those things happen, um, and it's a it's a it's an ongoing process. So I know some other folks in the mumble room had a chance to kick the tires. Anybody else want to chime in with their thoughts about Crux? So I can see uh, Wimpy's uh, point as a learning tool. I, it, it's it's a very humbling experience. If <laughs> you know, with every time I want to try and do something, you know, I have to think a little bit. But I don't see a whole lot of, and I'm, I might get my bit off my head bit off for saying this. I didn't see a whole lot of practical purpose for it. No. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think uh, you could use it. I use it at home, at work, uh, pretty much everywhere. But yeah, you can. Find another tool that perhaps does the job better. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I kind of like the I like that attitude of the project. It's like, hey, that's fine. Uh, and I think Kernel Linux. I think you and I kind of fall in the same camp where it's like, yeah, this tool isn't the right one for my box. Hello, but I think there are some boxes that tool fits quite well. And like uh, Jay Prager or Joe Joe Prager in the uh, chat room says that uh, you know our, uh, uh, Crux has been his main workstation for almost a decade now. So for some folks, you know, it does happen to fit that. Uh, uh, so, Noah, were you able to get it installed, or did you kind of read through the documentation and hit some road bumps and stop there? Well, so I, first I tried installing it on VirtualBox, and that turned out to be a, a huge mistake. Uh, I guess um, the way that the the way that the kernel compiles, I, I understand that it, it's. I guess it's a little bit different if you're going to do it on a VirtualBox. What I ended up doing is I bought one of those um, 
those Chrome boxes from Best Buy for like 150 bucks. I ended up installing it on that. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, I got it installed. So it, you know, everything worked okay. It just like it. It was kind of what um, somebody else said it already, but it was one of those things that like after a couple hours of every time I wanted to do something, going out and compiling all it, I just kind of was like, well, that was crux. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. But Bitpuffin, you say, hey, to me, that means I know just about where every file is on my system. I can go in and fix anything I need to, right? Yeah, and like, uh, we, like when things go wrong, we just know like how to fix them and uh, without like, having to refer to a wiki and look for workarounds and stuff. So Is it a bit of a tinker practical. aspect? Yeah, well, not so much tinker. It's just more like we have... It looks like a more close relationship to the system. So, like, I understand that. In yeah. Arch, you might not know what everything does because it, it just like magically configures stuff. But here, we kind of do a lot of stuff, things on our own, so we know like how to fix things. You are one with your file system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I get that. I actually, I also don't feel like t- you know. Uh, I don't think like I. I think sometimes we're always trying to look for like, and this comes back from like the eighties, like. Computers are useful tools that have practical reasons to use them all the time. And sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I have a computer over here and I like to tinker a little bit with the OS. I like to be a little bit of a hobbyist. And I can also get my work. And I kind of feel like that's for me, that's where Arch fits. It's like it's it's so, very serious and gets work done, but I can also tinker with it. Do you feel it fits in there, Noah? Yeah, I was just going to you hit you hit on something important. I, I love that mentality. And I think here's what bothered me. Um, specifically Crux, and Arch falls into this too. I feel like I, I find myself in a monkey-see-monkey-do situation where I'm doing stuff to get things done, but I don't necessarily understand what I'm doing. And mm. I feel like when I ask for help, everyone wants to give me the answer to how to get the job done, but nobody wants to explain why it is I'm executing the commands I'm executing. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that can also that can be a symptom Crux. of a wiki. You know, because yeah. it's just there, and you just kind of fall into this copy-paste syndrome. Right, that makes sense. And then you, so maybe you're not learning if you're doing that. I think you're always learning something, right? Like even if, even if I know what what commands to execute to get something done, even if I don't understand what those commands are doing, I'm still learning something. But I, there are there are multiple times I was like, I wonder what exactly that's doing. That's like that's really interesting, and I just feel. I mean, it's not that it's anyone's job to explain it to me, but it, it would have been <laughs> it'd be nice if there was more explanation to what each of those commands do. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I grab well, like one thing about the community that I find kind of different also is, like, with what you're saying, like in Arch, I definitely feel like people are just like, oh, don't you know, you just do this, and but in the Crux IRC, for example, I feel like they are much more pedagogical. But of course, we could probably be better than we currently are. But I still feel like there was a big difference from Arch to Crux mm. in how friendly people are with helping. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Arch does kind of have a bad rep for that. Uh, all right. Okay. Last call for Crux thoughts before we move on to our next topic. This has been a fascinating. Uh, I, I actually, in some ways, uh, I, I think you guys are lining up exactly with kind of where I fell on it on Sunday. Matt, did you have any any thoughts before we wrap up? I think that's really it. I think that the, the the meat and potatoes of it comes down to that you can actually you know learn how Linux works, understand what's going on, and go beyond uh, merely reading a wiki. That if you have a community with Crux, that you can actually ask why is it why am I doing this specifically? As Noah, Noah pointed out, that's really cool because you know in most other distributions you are basically just copying and pasting. So you know I think it's a great learning tool. I think that's what I see it as. It's yeah. a great way to understand what 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 your end result's going to be. If I do this, this happens, but I had to do this to get there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Very well, very well said. All right, Mumble I, Room. Go ahead, Les. Go ahead, Les. The last call for any yeah. thoughts. I, I think 
if you're eyeballing Gen 2 and you have the time or, like Matt said, the urge to learn, try out Crux first. I, that's that's the one thing I have to say. Very nice. All right. Well, uh, I've got uh, something that's been floating around the web and seems to have really resonated uh, with a lot of Linux users, uh, long-time Linux users and new Linux users that I want to bounce around with you guys and get your take on it. So first, let's stop and thank Ting. Go over to linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com. Think about that for a second. First of all, we got a mobile carrier to create a URL that has Linux in it. <laughs> so go to linux.ting.com to rocket to thank them for supporting Linux Unplugged. Now, what is Ting? Ting is mobile that makes sense. My mobile service provider and Matt's mobile service provider. And here's what Matt and I love about it. No contracts. That means no ETF. Don't ever worry about that. You don't have to deal with it. Plus, its pricing structure is so simple. It's a flat $6 a month. Okay, $6 a month. Then any taxes the man's going to put on that because the man be taxing. But then it's just your usage. Minutes, messages, megabytes. They add them up. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you pay. That's how all mobile companies should be. It's so unbelievable. It seems impossible, but it's legit. That's how Ting works. In fact, if you go over to Ting, they have the savings calculator. Pop that savings calculator. Put your usage in there. Not what they're scamming you out of. Not the amounts they're getting you to pay. Oh, well, you might use 1,000 minutes, right? You better pay 1,000 minutes every single month. Oh, actually, it turns out I only use 500 minutes. Well, I'm in a two-year contract. No, no, no. Go over to linux.ting.com, click the savings calculator, put your actual usage in there, and then get ready for this. Look at the savings, and then I've got good news. Ting has an early termination relief program. They'll pay up to $75 per line that you have to cancel. And then you're like, Chris, not good enough, buddy, because I got this phone, and this phone don't work on the Ting network. I got you covered. Actually, Ting's got you covered. They have a swap program. You can bring your sw- your smartphone over to Ting, and they'll swap it for a Ting-ready device. If you got an AT&T, Verizon, or T-Mobile's device, bring that over to Ting and take advantage of their swap program, and they're going to hook you up. And then you're taking advantage of the Ting control panel. Then you're only paying for what you've used. Then you've got no-hold customer service at one ting ftw where a real person answers the phone. You've got hotspot. You've got tethering. Picture messaging, caller ID, all built into every single plan, and you only pay for your usage. That's what's so awesome about Ting. And when you combine it with devices like the Nexus 5, hello, you can go get an awesome smartphone that you straight up legit own, and then go put it on a network where there's no contract, no early termination fee, and you're paying for your usage. Linux.ting.com will take $25 off your first device. $25 off your first device if you're going to bring a device. They'll give you a $25 service credit, and if you're like me, that's going to pay for more than your first month. Linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged show. Matt and I are here to tell you the Ting service rocks. And Matt, I don't know if you've yes. traveled outside of Washington much because, you know, I don't think you have since we, we've been, we haven't missed a week of shows. I don't think yeah, you I have. Was say, the big secret is <laughs> I never leave the house. Yeah. So, uh, but and that's, what, and that's what's great because I'm pretty much always here at the studio or I'm at the house and I'm on Wi-Fi. So I save a ton of money that way. And if, if you out there are in a similar situation, there is ridiculous savings to be had. But even if, even if you do end up on the road and use a fair amount of data or minutes, there's still savings to be had. If you can take advantage of Wi-Fi, then it really gets blitz nuts. Uh, I'll tell you, though, Matt, since you don't travel much, I was very happy to report that when we were down in Portland, I was getting LTE coverage like a bouse everywhere I went. So, nice. I, I, yeah, I felt, like, I felt like I was actually living in 2014. It was pretty Well, cool. and what's weird here recently is I've always, had good, I've always had good coverage in the house. Actually, I have a Verizon phone and I have a, a, a Ting phone. And, you know, they're, they're both different companies doing their thing. But I've noticed that Ting always got better coverage. What was interesting is recently, and I don't know what happened, I got more bars. Boom. I don't know what – 
More bars, yeah. They, well, they're firing up they LTE. All, no, yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, all over. So uh, wow. they're they, it just they're just totally destroyed Verizon. Yeah, there like, has oh. been a big rollout for the last. So this is the other thing too about the coverage. The coverage, the entire coverage map has changed in the last year, and it's still continuing to change too. That's it's really kind of neat. They're really uh, making a bit investment in that. Okay, I wanted to bounce around a topic with you in the mumble room. Uh, it's a piece that was over on phosphorus.com, and uh, it's it's been making the rounds. Every news outlet I follow to collect news for these shows has been carrying this piece. And the title is, you've probably heard about it, When Linux Was Perfect Enough. Right, I'm not going to quibble about the title. I'm not a huge fan of it, but okay, whatever. Uh, so here it is. The other day, this is I'm going to summarize it for you. This is from uh, Christine Hall, and she writes, The other day, my colleague, friend, and sometimes partner in crime, Ken Starks, published an article here on Phosphorus on one of his favorite gripes, that things didn't work right in Linux. This time, he was complaining about the font issue in Mint when using KDE. This is nothing new for Ken. Uh, in the past, he's written other articles about broken aspects of various Linux distros that never seem to get quite fixed. And his contention is these small bugs, which remain unfixed, release after release, are largely responsible for desktop Linux failures to take hold with the general public. And he's a, here's the thing, she says. He might be right. For Christmas, I bought my roommate a new second-generation Nexus 7 tablet running Android, an OS built around the Linux kernel. It just worked. Out of the box with no tweaking necessary. During the last seven months, she's used it for hours daily. And as far as I know, she's never found any glitches that require fixing. I point this out because Linux has all but taken over the tablet and phone end of the computing spectrum. Apple makes plenty of money with the iPhone and iPad, but that's due to their high prices. In market share, they lag far behind Android devices. And Microsoft has proven that Windows isn't, is, is not unbeatable anymore. It's not the giant it once was. Even with massive money spent on television ads and conspicuous product placement in nearly every scripted drama on CBS, mobile devices running Windows remain a mere asterisk when looking at market share. Today's average computer users and I loathe to use the word consumers, want to get things done on their computers without having to delve under the hood to fix things. This is understandable and isn't unlike the average automobile owner who just want to drive their cars without knowing or caring how it works. Just as most drivers take their cars to the shop for repair to solve mechanical and computer-related issues, most computer users take their device to the shop with no concern about whether the problem is hardware or software-related. They just want the damn thing to work. Back in 2002, I installed GNU Linux for the first time. At that time, like most Americans, I was tethered to a dial-up connection. And she goes on to talk about all of the little hardware problems that she had but didn't care about. You know, sound card didn't work. Scanners didn't work. But gone, finally, was the blue screen of death. And that, and that nearly daily crash that was business as usual with Windows. Unfortunately, gone were a lot of my peripherals that used to just work. Uh, but I didn't mind. I was free of Microsoft. And I was using a different operating system that made me feel like some sort of computer genius. My point is that back in those days, none of these flaws mattered. Most of us were already used to having to fiddle with configuration files and such. Even using IBM-compatible computers running Microsoft products, you still had problems. Like most users in those days, I'd cut my teeth on command-line DOS machines where printers had to be configured separately for each and every program and where the ability to write a succinct autoexec.bat was necessary. But that's not who's using computers today. Today, computer users just want the computer to work without problems out of the box. They don't want to have to figure out why Hulu or Netflix doesn't work or why their fonts display properly in some applications, but not others. These days, that includes me. While I'm happy I have enough skills to usually fix a bug that made 
uh, in the past uh, that I, while I'm glad I have the skills to usually fix a bug that made it made past developers of Mint and Fedora, I just as soon not be able to deal with it at all. I have to work. I have work I have to get done, and when I'm not working, I want to be wasting my time with friends on Facebook, not getting aggravated with my computer. <laughs> so she's making the point. What she's trying to say here is. Linux's amount of tweaking it takes to work sometimes was okay five years ago or so, back when all computers were like that. But a lot of computers, when you look at Chromebooks and iPads and MacBooks, have moved forward where that tweaking and that, that stuff just doesn't really happen at all anymore on those. And and it's no longer acceptable that Linux is still requiring that amount of configuration. Matt, on its face, do you think the premise is roughly accurate? Not only is it accurate, but but her source actually, unlike us who talk a lot, actually you know is in the trenches putting Linux and computers in front of people that can't afford them. So I mean, he really knows what he's talking about, literally. Yeah. I mean, at, at the base level, Ken does. Um, I yeah yeah Ken does exactly. And I used to be one of those guys that you know actually swap people out and stuff like that, but nothing like he does. So he's he's seen this and loving Linux and seeing this on a daily basis, and he's right. I mean, at the end of the day, there are certain paper cuts that exist on the most polished Linux desktop that can frustrate people to a certain extent that being said i've been a big supporter of the idea that with a proper support system in place this would not be a problem i've seen various companies attempt this linspire zombu various various attempts all failures but you know the idea was sound provide provide that apple like experience here's the rub as soon as you point to anything that's not, you know, that basically has the word A in it, like Apple, or has any other uh, non-Linux flavor to it or doesn't require you to get your hands dirty, a lot of Linux people get really uh, butthurt and, and really upset by that. And I never really understood what the big deal was. First of all, how many of them have actually experienced what Ken's talking about or what she's talking about, specifically the author of the, uh, Christine, the yeah. article? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So, I think that we're going to have to really noodle that over. Let me toss this to Faith. Faith says the problem right. here is that uh, there's not enough pre-installed Linux machines. Faith, do you think it's not a fair comparison because a lot of people buy a machine and a lot of stuff is already set up for them? What do you think? Well, I just think the issue is a little bit more complex. It's not any one thing. And for some people that need, like you said, Hulu or Netflix, that's going to be an issue. But I've done uh, installs for my friends and family. And for example, I don't I don't think anybody I've installed uh, Linux for, they've used Hulu or Netflix on their computer. They have it on their um, set-top box. So that hasn't been an issue, but they yeah, never true. would have used Linux if it wasn't for me, because even if you have a perfect distro where you never have to get your hands dirty, you still have to get your hands dirty to get the distro on the computer. And it's just, there are companies that sell uh, pre-installed Linux, but you have to already know what Linux is and go find them. Mm. Kernel Linux, you got your ears on. You've moved a lot of users over to uh, desktop Linux. Uh, do you? Uh, but when you do it, you're probably maybe smoothing over a few rough edges, even if it's just somebody setting up, creating user accounts, maybe adding the printer. What do you, how, what's your take on this article, Kernel Linux? Right, no, so I agree completely, and I want to echo what Faith said. I think there's the, the biggest problem is, I watched, I, and I, I've been, I was ragging on this in the mumble room, I think, a couple days ago, but I was in Best Buy, and this lady comes in, and she's sitting there, and she goes, yeah, I need to buy a new computer, and so I, I was looking at one of those MacBooks, so they go over, well, what do you do? <laughs> well, I check my Gmail, uh -huh. and uh, I like to watch YouTube videos, <laughs> oh, and I like to go on Facebook. 
And I'm like, uh, that's a Linux user right there. That could be a Linux user. Yeah. And the only reason yeah. she's not a Linux user is because there's no computer she can pick up in this brick-and-mortar store other than a Chromebook that has Linux installed. But when I was listening to you read that article, one of the things that stood out to me is how many of those problems are not Linux's fault. For example, Netflix. Yes, we don't have Netflix. Yes, it's a hacked-together solution. What are we supposed to do about it? If Netflix won't – if Netflix won't – if the market share doesn't dictate enough – users for Netflix to make the necessary changes to support Linux, what are we as Linux users supposed to do about that? Well, I okay. So, I mean, you mentioned the Chromebook. That's the elephant in the room, I think. I think the the, the Chromebook is, uh, is successful Linux, in a sense. I think the Chromebook represents... What uh, a company that takes Linux and consumerizes it and ships it on the desktop, just like the Android is also that. See, the thing is, is that Linux itself is just a general technology. And what I think we sometimes forget is we are the ones ele- electing to implement this general technology as a purpose workstation, right? And it's not necessarily we are taking something that's not necessarily an end product and forming it into an end product and it's not like we're doing it on billions of dollars of budgets like uh, the folks at Google are doing when they're making Chrome OS so I think when you look at it from that standpoint it's not a fair measurement to completely compare it to a commercial offering and I think we need companies like System76 to come in and say here it is as a product I've always said I think one of the important roles that System76 plays is they productize Linux because it isn't just Here's the ISO, or here's the DVD, or here's the box set. We've tried that. It doesn't work. It's really got to be kind of an end-to-end consumer solution. And right now, it's kind of Android and Chrome OS, as far as Linux goes, at a large scale. So yeah. here's my... Yeah? Oh, I'm sorry. No, go well, ahead. No, so, so here's my question to you. If So Chrome OS is technically Linux under the hood, and I can get to a root shell. So why can't I install GNOME 3 on, what is it, Gen 2 that it's based off of? Yeah, probably. Well, maybe. no, is the build system. It's just it's just used as the as the staging builds. That, that's what I'm getting. I mean, yeah. it's it's almost an un, it's all, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is it's almost unfair to call Chrome OS Linux because it yes it uses a Linux kernel, but it it's really not. I mean, it's not even Android is actually even closer to Linux than Chrome OS is, isn't it? Mm, I don't know. No, I think no. Chrome's closer. No. Yeah. The, la- the last time I built Chrome OS from source, you actually use an Ubuntu workstation to bootstrap the Gen 2 here's, boot stages here's how I look in at a it. CH root. I don't even look at it like that. When you run when you run a binary on Chrome OS, that's a that's a native Linux binary. If you did a PSAX, you'd actually see a, a Linux binary process. When you run an application on Android, most of the times you're running inside a Java virtual machine. That could be just as easily running on top of a Mac inside a JVM, right? If they had if they ported Dalvik over to Windows, you could run that same app if you had all of the APIs available to you. So it's not a Linux app, right? But on Chrome OS, those are native Linux processes. That's how I. That's why I think Chrome OS is more of a true Linux in a sense. It, it's a. It's a. It's a funky distinction, really. It's. It's. It's just Chrome OS kind of takes a lot of the the zeal that people have out of the whole Linux topic because you get to run a web browser and <laughs> that's about it. Yay. Yeah, I think what uh, Christine Hall and uh, what Ken are touching on is it's definitely worth us taking in and. and we need people out there thinking about this. And uh, I've got a story that uh, we'll cover on Sunday's Linux Action Show that it really does demonstrate that when you take somebody like like what Kernel Linux, a.k.a. Noah, is doing where you go out to a client or you go out to a company or you offer a service and you productize it 
um, it, it does work and it is usable. The, the, it's just that it's like the, the last the last mile essentially is that is that piece that takes the most work. And I think I think as Chrome OS continues to show success and as Microsoft continues to sort of focus on trying to create some sort of amazing synergy across all of their devices and all of the UIs, and as Apple continues to eventually move towards iOS and they armify their desktop, there is going to be people watching Chrome OS and go, you know, I could do that. I could make it even more like an actual computer, and I could do that. And it, maybe it's HP one day, right? I mean, it could be any co- – we don't know. And one of these companies could have something in the skunk works for all we know. And all of a sudden, boom, they bust out a new laptop. And it's, it's like Chrome OS, only it's maybe based on GNOME 3 or something. I mean, who knows? You, I think what the future holds is Linux is going to have an answer for somebody who wants to bring something to market. And maybe what we see today isn't even what we'll have in five years. So I'm, so I'm not too worried about it. And in the meantime, as long as I can keep building my desktop, I'm happy. All right, we'll wrap it at that. Well, Go ahead. You can. You'll close, us out, say, close it out. I would have to say that I'm not much of an Ubuntu guy, but I would really wish that Canonical stopped focusing on the mobile so much and go out back to the desktop a little bit and actually gave us a real Linux desktop that people can buy yeah. and you well, know people uh, can look forward to buying on the shelves instead of only looking towards the phone and as if the mobile was the only future that we have. We have a lot of desktops, a lot of laptops. Yes. Not going anywhere. Preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. Uh, hold those thoughts because that's actually going to – I have a topic I want to cover in the post show that will sort of underscore uh, what Heavens just said and I think what Wimpy wants to touch on too. So I'll wrap us up with this. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click the contact link. Send in your emails. Choose Linux Unplugged from the dropdown. We'd love to read them. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. We have feedback threads for every single episode. That's also a great place. You can also leave uh, any stories you think we should cover. Vote things up or down. Give us your insights. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. Last but not least, you've heard from our mumble room. You can be part of that. If you'd like to comment on these stories, if you're an observer of Linux and things like that, join our virtual luck. Go over to JBLive.tv. We do this show on Tuesdays, 2 p.m. Pacific. And if you go into our chat room, you can do bang mumble, it's the exclamation mark, bang mumble, and it'll give you our mumble server address. And it's an open room. Our mods just check your mics, make sure you're going to pass the audio checks, and then you can join us and comment on these stories. We'd love to hear from you. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar will also have that in uh, your time-appropriate time zone. The robots do that, Matt. We got robots just on standby. That's how much skills we got here, I think. Something like that. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up right there. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week on Linux Unplugged. Be sure to join us on Sunday for a great Linux action show. That's coming up. And uh, then we'll be right back here next Tuesday. Matt, have a great week. And uh, make sure uh, I'll make sure I have some Coca-Cola for you on Sunday because that was a disaster last time. That was unforgivable. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. See you right back here next week.
know what I realized is out of context, it sounds like I'm talking about like the kind of coke you snort. I'll get you some more coke, Matt. <laughs> Just make sure the mirror's actually been wiped off this time. I mean, that's the biggest yeah, issue I have. I mean, I, I can't stand it where there's like snot and Sorry about and, that. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah I blame know, that on the kids, Matt. I blame that on the kids. You know. All right, so there was a story I wanted to talk about in the post show. Everybody go to jbtitles.com while we talk about this and vote real quick. But I don't know if you guys saw this, but the Times of India today ran a story talking about massive gross that Ubuntu is seeing in India. And it's not Ubuntu Touch. It's Ubuntu on the desktop. Uh, the Linux-based operating system grew 50% year over year in... Uh, oh, look at that nice full-screen pop-up Times of India. That's so classy. 50% year over year. Canonical, the company behind Ubuntu, has partnered with Dell and HP to bundle the OS. Enterprises have been moving more to the cloud. They've not commented. And as more enterprises move to the cloud, they like to have the same operating system on the desktop and on the server. This is according to Greyhound Research's CEO. And online directory service just dials among early adopters of Ubuntu has 4,500 desktops running Ubuntu currently. I say because they have a web-based app. It works real nice. So here you go. India. Ubuntu is exploding in India. And... I guess what my point is, I guess what I get all upset about, and maybe I'm just totally wrong, and I admit that I could be wrong on this, but damn, it seems like Ubuntu just has like some kind of crazy-ass inertia right now, and more and more people and governments and countries are adopting it right at the time they're like, oh, mobile, over here, look at this, over here. Like, they're, they're getting like, oh yeah, 50% year-over-year growth in India. In India, that's huge, right? That's fundamentally huge. Right, but I mean, most... Yeah, I mean, I think my big concern is that I do feel like that they constantly are they they they, they fall into the PC is dying mindset. Okay, yes, mathematically, statistically, if you if you pound numbers hard enough, technically speaking, there's a big decline. No question about well, actually, that. Actually, actually, just but, recently, you know. actually, tablet sales are down. Apple's tablet sales oh, yeah, are down. Yeah. Tablet sales are down, and PC sales are up right now. Well, then there you yeah. go. The numbers are BS. So yeah, that totally that totally kind of makes the point. If that you know you can't get caught into these trends. I mean, at the end of the day, people need to do things on their computers. I've tried doing things on a tablet. I can't stand it. I, I can't actually get work done on a tablet. But I can on a computer. I'm weird. I like a keyboard and mouse. I'm strange. But so am I, am I wrong? In the uh, my general sense of it is like they're like Luke Skywalker and like somebody on the radio is like, stay on target, stay on target, Luke, stay on target. And then at the, at, at the last stretch, they veered off target. And like now, it's just still, now. Despite the, despite that, they're still seeing adoption. I think well, it, here's what's happening: Luke Skywalker's on target doing his thing, and here comes Han Solo on the big mobile phone. <laughs> Yeehaw! You know, and he does whatever the hell he does. You got all the kid. credit, Josh. You think uh, you think I got yeah. it wrong, Josh? Yeah, I mean, most of these governments are, you know, deploying large bounds of LTSs. You know, it's not like they're going to be putting the bleeding edge 14.10, you know, unicorns on there or something. So you think it doesn't uh, matter? Uh, a lot no, of, I mean, that still matters. Well, well, I mean, I mean, I, a lot of the work that's being done for mobile is going to occur during the times between LTSs. So by the time an LTS lands, it's theoretically going to be stable and unity should by then have landed in lts See, and if not that then argument just be supporting unity where that argument in. falls down is that that presupposes that they can afford a, about a two to five year window where not a lot of improvements are made on the desktop and i i mean you just look at that article we just read there linux is trapped in this uncanny valley where we are like like we're like good cg but we're not yet convincing cg and every time we release a new movie we're finally like yeah man that cg was good and then you see the next movie and you're like oh yeah that cg was way better than the last movie that's where desktop right. linux is at we're in the uncanny valley where we just 
can't quite seem to nail it. And I would argue the last, last thing we need to do is dial it back and put it on the back burner for a couple of years while we focus on a completely unproven platform that's completely already dominated by massive multinational companies. Well, I'd just like to also point out, like, um, they they may not work on the desktop for a couple of years. How long did XP go in use without it being worked on? But that's not fair, though, because, no, that's not fair, because Microsoft continued to release service packs. They made fundamental changes in SP3 to Windows XP. I mean, so they've continued to release, they continue to release uh, Internet Explorer, Windows Media, DirectX, all of these things over the lifespan of Windows XP got updates that added fundamental new functionality to the operating system. Right, but Ubuntu's doing the same thing for, I mean, Canonical's doing the same thing for Ubuntu. They release hardware enablement stacks for new kernels and new drivers yeah, and such, and they, right. they keep deploying new versions. But you're, you're, of, comparing, you know, a, you're and, comparing a finished product to something that's not good enough. Oh, yeah, the Ubuntu well, okay, desktop your, is not good enough. It's not good enough. XP at the time was good think, enough for the market. Subjective. Right, I, yeah. No, okay, no, no, that's... no, no, it's not. No, I, I think it's subjective to who? The millions of people that are not buying Ubuntu-based machines? That's who it's subjective to. I mean, look at the sales. The sales bear it out. It's subjective to only us because we're, because we're the ones willing to tolerate the pain. I don't think, I think as a community, we fail to recognize the severity of the problem. And I think this plays into the mass sales of MacBooks and Mac OS X, is we oh, yeah. are blind to it. We recognize it's kind of there, but we don't see it. It's that, again, I go back to Uncanny Valley. To us, it looks good, but you show it to somebody else, you're like, man, that looks like horrible CG. I've had okay. people who think that Linux looks great, but it's, they think it's too expensive or too hard to set it up. But if there was like a company that just took Chromebooks and System76 styled it and just turned it into a Linux machine and then they sold it as a product, that would bring in a ton of people. Yeah, well, I mean, since the proposed argument here is that you know we aren't we aren't objective because we're using it, but everyone that I've Every single person I've installed uh, Ubuntu on, and I always install Ubuntu with Unity, none of them have hated it or thought it was bad. They just never knew it existed. Yeah, but you could make that same argument if you gave them a MacBook Air. Oh, yeah. I definitely would make the same argument, too. It's just they can't afford that. They probably have right. a Mac if they could afford it. Yeah, I think um, I think, I think part of the mistake is we almost should really stop comparing it to Windows in a sense because I think people who have decided to make the switch – aren't necessarily shopping to other Windows machines. They, If you're making the switch away from Windows, by right now, by default, you're almost just going to the Mac. There's also I mean, a really weird fundamental thing here. Tablets are tablets. PCs are PCs. Mainframes are fucking mainframes. They don't go anywhere. They're still around from like 40, 50 years Yeah, they're their ago. own technology desktops, branch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Great point. Or little desktop or little friggin' mobile things, that's their own niche. They're not going to replace desktops. Desktops are here for pretty much the end until we, I don't know, 120 years from now. I guess what I, by the core issue I, uh, so it, back to Josh's point that I, I, I take the most problem with is this, I go back to this problem that I've talked about a million times, but we've had two huge windows of opportunity for desktop Linux, specifically for Ubuntu, out of more so than any other distribution. One was Windows Vista, which they blew it by, that's when they switched to Unity. And the second one is Windows 8, which we've now blown it by just kind of sitting and putting the desktop on the back burner. And maybe for some of you, you know, and no, this is no judgy, I mean legitimate, maybe for some of you, Ubuntu truly has solved all of the little niggles that bother you, and it's fine. 
you're very fortunate. For me, when I use Ubuntu, it starts to feel very dated. It feels very old. There's things about it that should have been addressed a long time ago. There's little things that shouldn't be like that anymore. And it, to me, I sit there and I see a desktop that's been neglected. And I can't see past that neglection when I use Unity and when I use Ubuntu. All I can see is the neglection. Now, if you don't see that neglection, that's great for you. But it is a reality because they're obviously focused on other things. And isn't this just, god damn it, the wrong time to lose your focus on the ball? It's coming yeah. right into the mitt. You could make the perfect catch. Well, and to, to reiterate what you were saying, I want to expand on that. Take the software center, you know, that thing that has not been updated since I can't even remember how long. The comical part of it is, is they, when, when Canonical actually went and did this whole thing, they got people from Linspire who did the original software center, which, by the way, in 5.0 was way cleaner and way, 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 way easier to <laughs> yeah, use yeah, it was than better. it is in Ubuntu. I know. It was one click to install software. <laughs> bad, granted, bad, bad, per, bad permissions. It was, it was admin. It was out. evil. It was terrible. I get that. Ah. But the point is, is the end user didn't care. And yet, they, and now they managed to actually take those developers, apparently make them make a crappier product, and then, okay, we're done. Oh, let's make a phone. I mean, what the hell were they smoking? I don't understand that. I mean, to this day, it infuriates me when I show when I see the software center. I just want to. I just want to punch well, my screen. And it's the stomach it. of like a I failure to complete. Like, God. like they almost get there and then they never bust it. Like, so for example, like they get well, how so the hell's it production. They get so close to something good and then they say, "Oh, we're not making any money off the software center." Instead of making the software center great, they just kind of bail and say, "Well, that was our path to revenue. That didn't pan out." It's a okay, bloated bag of stuff I'm not going to say on the air. I mean, it's horrible. So, you know, <laughs> I, I can't understand. I mean, let me put it this way. I can run it faster in the most bloated browser possible. I can run it yeah, in, like, yeah, IE6 yeah. faster than I can. And I, I oh, my it God. It is better on the web. All right. Well, that's right. For giving other people our perspective. <laughs> this is, like, why I hate Ubuntu. When people know our perspectives and why I don't trust them anymore or dislike them. Yeah. So I feel okay. the same way too about like everything that you said about Ubuntu. Like that's why I run GNOME three on Arch. But um, I just yeah. I don't think that perspective that they're not doing enough is inherent in the average consumer that these um, companies and uh, governments are catering to. Right. Okay. But, so for enterprise and governments, is not necessarily. As important, let's be honest. Yeah. They're and not... they do a good job there. They do a good job for yeah. enterprising governments. You know, I would say, generally speaking, if you're, yeah, if you need a calendar, if you need email, it's not as important. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter as much. It just got to work. Yeah, so that's why XP all... worked for them. Yeah, oh, God, okay. You know, yeah. That's so, I mean, if we're, so if we all hate Ubuntu, then what? What do we go to? What's the next solution well, that we can hand out to no, people? I would say that I would sure say going to be Fedora. I would say the outrage right. comes from the fact that people don't hate it. The outrage comes from the fact that people want it yeah, fixed. That's it. That that's my problem is that I like the Ubuntu core. I do. I like I like the base. If I even even Unity for, with all its faults is is great. I I'm I can get over so much of all the things because they do a lot of nice things yeah. that I notice when I boot into. It's like oh hey things that I would normally well, have to and, and like, look at what happened. Like when Steam was announced, can't you? You could see how yeah. it was important for for Valve to have a company to reach <laughs> out to, like Canonical, and say, "Hey, we want to work with you guys. We're gonna we're gonna use this. We can, you know. And hey, how does this work? How does this work in your kernel? Can you do hardware enablement? These kind of things, these back and forth. Like having a company behind a, a widely used desktop product is beneficial because that's how the industry works, right? You, you like, I don't think you could ever have Arch be the number one distro on desktops oh. because there's not a company for the rest of the business world to interface with there's not a ceo that goes exactly. up on stage and announces features and gets everyone's yeah. attention so you need yeah, a canonical 
Yeah. You yeah. do. Yeah. And I think going even further than that, I would point out the fact it. that, you know, I realize wholeheartedly that Ubuntu, there's certain things you're just not going to be able to just magically fix. I get that. But some of the things that are wrong with it are so stupid obvious. It makes my brain hurt. If you know an app sucks, first of all, for the love of Pete, st- fix your stupid bug reporting system. Get a grip. We're not all developers. <laughs> I don't want to sit there and spit them. out a buttload of text about stuff, half of which I'm not going to read. Look, yeah. make it stupid easy. When I crash Stop something nagging. on any other operating don't system, don't nag so yes. much. God, just get a grip, guys. There's that's, just little things that's, they can That's fix. an example of that's negligence. That's all. a perfect like the the, the the app report thing. That how does that how does that st- how is that still a thing after all this time? How is that still a thing? It's Especially negligence. When it, like doesn't tell you. Yeah, there's been an error. We're right. not tell you what it is. Go after yeah, yourself. I mean, we want them to succeed, but they just freaking aren't doing it. Right. Like, My we, favorite. We're pissed off that they're not doing it. They should. My favorite one was uh, you. There's a new version of your proprietary graphics driver. Okay, well, let's install that. Oh, now I don't have any picture. <laughs> now, now, now I'm yeah, in a shop. Okay. Now what do I do? Oh, I'd look it up on the internet, except I can't, I don't have internet. So, because but, but I have is that no really picture. the fault of Ubuntu and not the fault specifically about the, the developers of said driver? Well, but the end the user doesn't pushed care. It out to me. That's the problem. Yeah, the end user, all they know is there's a driver, and it's newer than what's there, and they might want to play their games better, so why don't I click to install it? Oh, well, now and, I, I don't have a And that was probably a function of the tool, right? The tool shouldn't have completed the installation if there was a mistake. Right. Exactly. But again, no, if, if, if you have an updated... Just- 